Welcome to OECD Podcast, where policy meets people. I'm Clara Young, and I'm very happy to be in the studio with Jeff Mulgan. Thanks for coming in, Jeff. Thank you. Jeff is Chief Executive of the National Endowment for Science, Technology, and the Arts in the UK, where he's been for the past eight years, but he's leaving very soon, apparently. We're glad to be able to talk to him before he goes. Jeff, you wrote a book called Big Mind, How Collective Intelligence Can Change Our World that came out two years ago. What's collective intelligence? Well, in essence, this is really about how thought happens at large scale. How does an organization think or a city or a nation? And the prompt for the book was that we now have a whole array of new tools for organizing thought at large scale, the internet, data, and so on. But that there's a whole history of more non-technological ways of trying to orchestrate many brains, which we've often forgotten. And I believe we'll get the best out of future generations of artificial intelligence and digital tools if we combine the AI with the CI, the artificial intelligence and the collective intelligence. And that requires new methods, new ways of thinking about design and use and so on, which aren't actually being used enough in governments at the moment. So I think the collective intelligence holds the key to much more successful problem solving in all sorts of fields. You said that uh, we've had many non-technological ways to organize collective intelligence. What are those? Well, in my book, I look at some of the history of collective intelligence. There are examples from the 19th century, for example. Uh, The Oxford English Dictionary was one which attempted to map the entire English language and all of its meanings, and to do so mobilized tens of thousands of volunteers who split the task up, documented different words and their meanings in 1300 or 1750 and so on, to aggregate into a usable dictionary, very like what Wikipedia then did more than 100 years later in creating a crowdsourced encyclopedia. And there have been many examples, and indeed you could say the whole of human civilization is an attempt at organized collective intelligence. Our great advantage now is we have much more powerful technologies to support that kind of mobilization of brains at large scale. And we're seeing this very dynamically in some fields. So science is a good example, where now we have large citizen science projects with, for example, a million people on Galaxy Zoo spotting new stars in the universe or analyzing patterns of bird migrations and nature. Uh, So that's sort of becoming almost mainstream in science that you link the professional scientists with collective intelligence of volunteer citizens. We're getting many applications in business, so Duolingo is a good example on language translation, which is both a commercial offering online, but also, again, mobilizes thousands of volunteers to add in new language pairs. We're beginning to see collective intelligence in fields like democracy, with um, cities in Spain like Madrid or Barcelona or the parliament and government in Taiwan deliberately trying to organize their democratic policymaking processes to tap into the insights and experiences and ideas of hundreds of thousands of people, a world away from the classic uh, sort of models of parliaments, referendums and four or five yearly elections. What about uh, in healthcare? Uh, collective intelligence is being mobilized in healthcare as well. I think in, a, in an article that you wrote quite recently, you you talked about the focus on cancer. How is crowdsourcing helping uh, cancer patients? So healthcare in general and cancer in particular is is a fascinating field where there's an enormous amount of data available. There's data on every diagnostic, data on uh, hospital treatments, data on genomics, all of which helps to analyze 
the state of a cancer, people's options for treatment. But what we've been arguing is if we can, in addition, link that into the insights of patients themselves, the more informal insights of doctors, which may not have gone through the formal processes of randomized controlled trials and so on, we can make the, the system much more intelligent in helping people navigate their way through their own treatment. So you often, let's say you are living with a cancer, you may want to hear from other people who've had a similar cancer and have found a particular diet or a particular way of handling pain useful to them. So in my mind, the future of healthcare will be these combinations of very rich data, linked data sets, some, um, some medical, some social, some genomic, uh, and using that to generate algorithms so people can predict the effectiveness of different treatments. But in addition, tying in this human-generated, patient-generated collective intelligence so that everyone can tap into the bigger mind, the collective brain of, of the whole of their society. And we're seeing this a lot in rare diseases where already large numbers of patients have been gathering together to fund research, to share data about their own experience of things like Parkinson's. And in a way, this often uh, sort of patient-generated movement is beginning to migrate into the traditional health system dominated by doctors and bureaucrats and others who in the past were a bit resistant to that. But I think the smart people in health realize the future is, again, it's AI plus CI, data and clinical professional knowledge plus citizen patient-generated collective intelligence. And the goal of that would be for patients to be able to move towards a more active involvement in their treatment. I think in almost every field, the promise of collective intelligence is to give the individual or indeed the small group more control, more agency over their choices, and that could be their choices of cancer treatment, or for that matter, it could be their choices about jobs and careers in a very rapidly changing labor market. Or in democracy, it could be active participation in shaping policies rather than just being uh, an observer. And this is why I think that there's a sort of bigger, both ethical and political dimension to collective intelligence. All over the world, many people feel a bit cut off, a bit disempowered, a bit out of control. They feel they are just observers on decisions made by distant elites. The collective intelligence movement, if you like to call it that, is a way of really twisting, turning that around so people can feel and exercise real control over their lives, but tapping into the accumulated intelligence knowledge of the world. We say always there's that saying, three heads are better than one, but sometimes when you have too many people, when you have too many heads, you end up squabbling. How do we stop that from happening with collective intelligence? How do we design it? This is, I think, where it gets really interesting. There was a, a popular idea 10 or 20 years ago, uh, which came from the book The Wisdom of Crowds, which appeared to say you only needed to empower the crowd and automatically you would get more intelligent solutions. What we've discovered is that crowds are only wise with a bit of help, a bit of structure, a bit of um, uh, uh, process. And so what we call intelligence design is really about how you organize processes so they do tap the full intelligence of a, of a group rather than just uh, shouting or noise or treating every input as equal where one might be deeply knowledgeable or have deep experience and one not at all. And this is happening in a very quite an interesting way in democracy. How do you organize the debates around issues in such a way that people don't uh, troll each other, denounce each other in ways which don't polarize opinion but rather bring it together? That, that gets down to very fine-grained design of social media 
platforms and discussion platforms and decision making. And of course, our social media have gone almost exactly the wrong way in the last five or 10 years. Similarly in health, if you can have collective intelligence in health, it's not that everyone's opinion is equal. There is you know, a whole body of deeply grounded clinical knowledge about what works or what doesn't work, about understanding human biology. You don't want to ignore that. You've got to respect that, as it were, hierarchy of knowledge, but also link it into a much broader base of inputs around things like experience or management of pain, which aren't so well understood by the traditional medical hierarchies. And one of the arguments we've been making in the last few years is there is a new field of intelligence design needed. It's not at the moment being taught by any universities. There are no companies specialized in it. Uh, people are making it up as they go along, but it's as much a field needing a practical discipline as product design or institutional design, all these other elements of design. And my forecast would be in five or 10 years time, any serious university across the world will have courses and probably faculties doing intelligence design, combining data, computer science and all of that, but also human psychology and also understanding of organizations and politics and economics and all the other things which in reality you need to make a system truly intelligent at scale. Can you point to a collective intelligence project or app or system that has good design? Well, one of the, the, the fields I'm really interested in is what we call intelligence assemblies. When people or companies have tried to pull many elements together to become like a human brain is at its best, combining observation, memory, creativity, judgment, all the things we do every day, hopefully, in uh, between our, <laughs> in our skulls. And there are some good examples. There are um, very well-known ones like Google Maps, which was an assembly of multiple elements by Google. They bought up lots of startup companies. They used open APIs so that hundreds of thousands of websites could use Google Maps. They had Google Map Maker so the public could fill in missing bits. So it's a good example of mobilizing large-scale collective intelligence to create something very useful. Wikipedia is, of course, another very well-known example. I'm also interested in perhaps more emergent ones, for example, in healthcare, trying to map the state of bacteria and antibiotic resistance in cities around the world. There's a fantastic small project called Metasub doing that in 80 cities globally to help the world realize if antibiotic resistance is emerging so that we can respond more effectively. Things like Copernicus in Europe maps the state of our ecosystems, our forests, our seas and our lakes with extraordinary technical tools of satellite imaging and so on. So we're beginning to see some really exciting programs putting collective intelligence ideas into practice. So one is being led by the, the UN and the UNDP, which just in the last few weeks has announced the creation of 60 accelerator labs, which will be in 60 countries across the world, helping to use collective intelligence methods to speed up the achievement of the Sustainable Development Goals. So that's a large-scale program trying to use the best uh, tools of, of data analysis, crowdsourcing, innovation, and so on around issues like access to water or children's mortality or improving schooling. And we're just beginning to see a few national governments, like in UAE and other places, realizing collective intelligence is part of the future of public policy. So my forecast is in a year or two's time, uh, this idea will have moved from being an interesting but perhaps slightly marginal idea to becoming much more mainstream to how we think about the job of public policy and government. 
we're putting a lot of money into artificial intelligence. Are we putting the same amount of resources into collective intelligence? There's a huge imbalance between investment in AI and CI. Tens of billions being invested in AI by companies like Facebook and Google, governments in China, the US and across Europe, and almost nothing being put into collective intelligence. Now, that is not very smart in my mind. And, not and if, very intelligent. It's not very intelligent. If we really want intelligent outcomes, we want a more intelligent, say, health system, schooling system, transport system, then I would recommend to spend 1% of the money going into AI into CI and I predict you get much better value for money for citizens and taxpayers and consumers. So we're beginning to see emergent, really very good examples of collective intelligence. They're still not the norm, though, in public policy or governments. And one of the reasons is, as I said before, is the, the absence of an intelligence design profession, which can help turn these promising examples into the everyday mainstream in the way that something like Google Maps has become so much part of our, our everyday life. You've uh, spoken about uh, a knowledge commons and, uh, for example, in health. What is that? A knowledge commons in some ways is a very simple idea. Is how do we mobilize the accumulated knowledge of the world in useful forms? And in some ways, we're in a very paradoxical moment. On the one hand, it appears you can Google search for anything. So it appears knowledge is at your fingertips. And yet in reality, it's very hard for people to get hold of the most useful knowledge for them. I mean, you could be a policymaker in a municipal government or a national government or in a business. You often get noise back <laughs> or confusion. So what a health knowledge commons is, is essentially a much more structured body of knowledge uh, organized in a way so that you can link, as I said earlier, very specialized clinical knowledge based on randomized controlled trials and clinical trials, but also emergent innovations or patient-generated insights. But the crucial thing is that the Knowledge Commons shows you how much reliability to put on different kinds of information and turns it into forms which are easy for you to use whereas searching through academic databases or journals is not exactly very accessible for most of the population. And alongside the intelligence design task, I think we will see more and more investment in the orchestration of knowledge commons, in education, in health, welfare, policing, all of these different fields, where at the moment knowledge is surprisingly poorly organized. And in our experience, uh, most public sector professionals across most of the world aren't using most of the knowledge they could be using to do their job better. It's the paradox of a very connected world is it's still in surprisingly ignorant in all sorts of ways. And that's partly because it's no one's job to organize that knowledge in ways which are used and useful. So, for example, all the government data that we have, putting that to use. Yeah. Well, in, in the UK in the last few years, we've been creating what works centers. And uh, we host at Nesta, I think, or the Alliance for Useful Evidence, which is all about making evidence useful and used by teachers, social workers, policymakers, police officers, and so on. And it turns out that's partly a job of organizing the world's experience of what does or doesn't work on, you know, vehicle burglary or primary school maths, etc., but also making it easy to digest for very busy people on the front line. And that's why we called it the Alliance for Useful Evidence. It's not just about having a repository of academic uh, uh, reports. And these, in a way, are, are versions of future knowledge commons, where it becomes much more explicitly someone's job to curate, organize complex knowledge and make it easy for people to use. 
And my hope is in the next five or 10 years, there'll be many more people essentially who have that job. Of course, the OECD plays a crucial role in, in feeding into that kind of knowledge commons. In a way, you are a knowledge commons, but I think you often need others to help turn that knowledge into more easily digestible forms for people you know, on the front line in a school or a small town. Well, thank you, Jeff, for that very interesting conversation on collective intelligence. Thank you for listening to OECD Podcasts. I'm Clara Young. To listen to other podcasts, please find us on Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud slash OECD.